Good morning. Uh, for those that are new, my name is Dean Briggs. I uh, am part of the leadership team here in the messaging division. I want to share today on the injunction, be holy as I am holy, but I want to look at it maybe a little differently than you have heard and add some tools for the renewing of your mind. Um, some very interesting things scripture puts together about holiness that you may not have seen before. Uh, I'm inspired by this topic in general of the goodness of God, the nature of God, the way he thinks and works with us, his big plan, the administration suitable to the fullness of the times for the summing up of all things in Christ, that lofty language of Ephesians. And uh, uh, I'm just mindful Actually, before I get into that, part of how I landed here with fresh appreciation is just being struck by the great kindness of God to this spiritual family for decades now of really rich, intelligent, anointed faithfulness to Scripture and the teaching of the Word. And I, uh, on, on Friday, I was here at EGS listening to Mike sharing on the Trinitarian conversation and fellowship. And, and one of the points Mike makes over and again and has for years and years and years is we want to be in the conversation with God, not just reading principles, but pray it, speak it, sing it, all those things. We want to be talking to God about things. And it struck me last night as I was finishing my notes, inspired by Stuart's message last week, on how the blood of Christ is what gives us confidence to enter the Trinitarian conversation. And he made the point that the blood of Jesus, as we know, initiates a new covenant, and that part of what God does, we can see in Peter challenging Peter's self-righteousness until he can align with the only supply of righteousness, which is Christ himself, and I just love that conversation, and it struck me, the gratitude I feel, the, the ways I've been ministered to for decades out of this place. And I believe, I just want to take two minutes and have that kind of corporate gratitude moment for ourselves. I would like anyone who has a, a, a place now or in the past where you have taught the Bible on the mission base or through the ministry of the mission base in homes, please stand. Go ahead, please stand. Scripture says these people are worthy of double honor. And I want to applaud your labors in the word to break the bread of life. Can we thank God for them? You may be seated. There's so much happening, and at the uh, uh, executive leadership team, we, we talk about there's so much ground to cover, but it's easy to focus on the demand, but I'm just mindful of how God has supplied what we need. I think over the years, so much great teaching, Alan Hood, Corey Russell, Stuart, Isaac Bennett, Dave, Dana Candler, you know, others, uh, Deborah Hebert, Bob Sorge, so much good teaching. That's actually not common in the body of Christ for the riches of revelation to be concentrated in one place. And then there's this guy you might have heard of named Mike Bickle. And Mike is a poet scholar on the affections of God. And so many have been drawn here because. They see something in Mike's life and in the message he has that has given clarity and an invitation to experience the emotions of God for ourselves. And I love that message. So many of us have been shaped by it. But part of what's stirring me this morning is the desire to uh, add to that, not in a way that diminishes the critical need for an understanding of the emotions of God. The emotions of God touches us in a way that brings wholeness, it brings confidence, 
It brings liberation. It brings peace. It brings strength. When we enter into that delight of the Godhead among the Godhead, and we see that delight is given to us, and we get to give that back and receive it, this is food for the soul and life for mankind. But there's a challenge in the uh, uh, possible uh, overemphasis on the emotions of God in that we as humans live in our own emotional fickleness. So we know that emotions can be glorious, but they can also be toxic. They can seem so solid one day and they can shift the next. I'm riding the heights of victory and, and, and all of this and then one thing goes wrong and I just think everything is, everything is wrong because my emotions are subjective and they move with the times and we accidentally push that onto God. Even though we know he doesn't change, even though we know he's eternal, uh, uh, there is no shadow of turning in him, he's not just giving or feeling the emotion of love, he is love. He's perfect love, he's perfect truth, he's perfect wisdom. All these things, God is perfectly stable, but the emotional conversation alone can be tainted by our experience of our emotions, and so we can end up, if we don't renew our mind, in the mind of God as much as the emotions of God. I wanna know the mind of God so that I can experience his emotions fully and not be persuaded by a lie that God's emotions are as fickle as mine. And so that is a process of renewal and sanctification as we are conformed more and more to how he thinks. And that's actually a pretty good definition of truth. You wanna know what truth is? Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. I'm gonna get to that. But Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. What is truth? Truth is whatever God thinks. It's that simple. You and I try to learn truth and it becomes a series of principles to us. Well, here's a truth, here's a truth. The word is truth. We get those truths as if they are principles. Truth is a person and, and truth is whatever that person thinks. So if he thinks that there's no falsehood in him, there's no lies, and his mind is full of the truth of who he is, and the truth of who he is helps us understand how he does things that are not only emotional and in that sense subjective to the moment in our experience, but they are eternal and fixed in his nature. For example, part of what God does and who he is and the truth of how he thinks is through covenant. God thinks covenantally. And I'm gonna spend time today talking about covenant and holiness and the Sabbath and putting these things together so that we have a, a, a real firm foundation in addition to the emotion of God to fully enjoy the emotion of God because the more we move into the days ahead. The more Isaiah 19 and the rage of nations and the conversations we're having, the, 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 the trouble we see in the earth, as that intensifies, it's gonna to touch our emotions. It's gonna be mentally strenuous. It's going to be physically challenging. The more we feel those things, the more we experience them in the pressures of the end of the age, the more we need to have the mind of God and think like God and feel what God feels, we need the whole package. Amen. So, uh, if you haven't downloaded the notes, you can use the QR code in front of you uh, or you can go to forerunnerchurch.com, top of page one. To understand holiness, we need to peel back layers of assumptions that have accumulated over many generations. We need more clarity, a, a, a return to some of the fundamentals of the definitions of what righteousness is and holiness and sanctification and covenant. Because these things are how God thinks, and yet they can become kind of theologically fuzzy 
through our overuse of them. We get familiar with them and we don't understand the distinctions between them. We don't understand the sequence of them, but these things emerge from the ordered mind of a logical God who is not only the most passionate feeler and lover in the universe, but the most brilliant and consistent intelligences. He's all of it. And if we can understand how he thinks and the sequence by which he has ordained the most beneficial and loving interaction with humanity, then we have confidence on every level. Be holy as I am holy. What does that command to be holy mean? Most of our framework comes from commandments in the law. There's 45 occurrences in the New King James Bible, 45 occurrences of the phrase, be holy, and 30 of the 45 are in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. 20 of them are in Leviticus alone. So the phrase, be holy as I am holy, is coming to us out of the framework of law, and most of us, therefore, have a legal approach to that. That's as it should be, and I'm going to unpack this, but I just want to acknowledge the source material is affecting how we determine this. The context of it is, is uh, affecting our interpretation of what be holy means. Leviticus, right? I mean, that's a serious book. How many of you just got done with your Bible study in Leviticus? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a slog. You've got to work through it, and it's all about the sacrifice, the penalty of sin, the cost. And right there, 20 times, be holy. Whoa. Paul talked about this. It's a serious command. We need to have a fresh conversation about holiness in the church. He said that he, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, he talked about divided interests among uh, uh, married people versus celibate people. And he said a married, an unmarried woman is, is not divided. She's concerned about the things of the Lord. An unmarried man and an unmarried woman have the uh, uh, desire to be holy in body and spirit. And I just want to acknowledge some of the language that's associated with holiness. We see that word divided. Paul didn't want there to be a division. He wanted, there to, to, he wanted to secure undivided devotion. And practically speaking, the affairs of life can creep in and cause division. This is central to an understanding of holiness. I'll define it in a little bit. Another interesting pairing Paul talks about that we were chosen, Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Now, what's interesting, he says holy and blameless, and later, talking about the bride without spot or wrinkle, he says holy and without blemish. Holy and blameless and holy and without blemish, but most of what we think about holiness is to be blameless and without blemish. Paul paired them together to give a full understanding because Holiness is actually a reality and a process to become blameless and without blemish in our conduct and behavior, but we often only focus on the no blemish and blameless part, and we don't yet understand the mystery of holiness. Peter said, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be holy in all your conduct. He really means it. We're meant Holiness is meant to translate to real life in what you look like, how you think, and how you act. Holiness isn't to be watered down to some, something without teeth. It really imposes on us a call to be conformed to the standard of God. We are to be holy. The question is how? So let me quickly give some terms that matter here. I'm gonna talk about covenant, righteousness, holiness, 
sanctification, justification, and I'm going to do it very quick. Covenant is an oath-bound commitment or relationship between two or more parties, typically with one stronger and one lesser. We see covenants in Scripture. Again, covenant is how God thinks. From beginning to end, he's, he's negotiating his relationship with mankind through covenant. In modern terms, we think of contracts, but contracts are very weak compared to covenants. They have similarities. There's parties involved that are defined. There's stipulations. There's terms. There's consequences. There's indemnification. There's, there's uh, uh, the, a contract defines how two parties relate, but you sign a contract and you can break a contract. A covenant is sealed and it's meant to be unbreakable. God covenantally has revealed himself to mankind in multiple ways, and we see seven of these over the course of Scripture. But of these seven, there's really only two types, two major types. Unconditional covenants, which are covenants of grace, and conditional covenants, which are covenants of performance. He starts from the very beginning... He starts with a covenant in the garden. And part of what I want to establish from the very beginning is covenants of performance will always fail. You will always fail in a covenant of performance. And I can prove it. In the garden, you have the optimal conditions for human beings to satisfy by their own virtue and performance the terms of the covenant. There's only two people. There's only one rule. And it is a perfect environment without sin. Think about that. God's like, I'm gonna make this as easy as possible. The covenant of performance. There's not seven billion free wills. There's not 600 laws. In America, there's Thousands and thousands of laws on the books now. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands to govern human behavior. This is real simple. Two people who don't know sin yet, a paradise, a perfect environment, one rule. Come on, guys, can you do it? Nope. You are guaranteed to fail in a covenant of performance, and that's part of the mind of God that we get from the very beginning of the story. Righteousness. What is righteousness? We associate righteousness with a certain kind of behavior, but that's what holiness has to do with. Righteousness is right standing according to the terms of the covenant. That's the definition of righteousness. That's why covenant is critical to understand before you start to talk about righteousness because you're only right in your standing if you obey the terms of the covenant. So that leads to a challenge because scripture is structured testamentally. As a revelation of the mind of God, the two testaments, that's Latin for covenant. It's all about an old covenant and it's all about a new covenant. And in that truth of the old covenant and the new covenant, God is giving us understanding of two different paths of righteousness. It's actually not a different righteousness because he alone is righteous. It's two different paths for humanity to follow based on their obedience to the terms of the covenant and whether they're in right standing with that. But we just established a covenant of performance is going to lead to failure. So you are guaranteed to fail the test of righteousness if it's up to your performance. Holiness means to be set apart. That's the primary definition of holiness, to be set apart. From the being set apart, we have a secondary understanding of holiness, which is to be unmixed. And that's what Paul was talking about, to secure undivided devotion. 
He made an appeal to the process of sanctification to create the unmixed heart that produces the third definition of purity. And you got to follow the, the, the progression of thought. Again, God is very logical. If you're set apart, holy means set apart from profane things. To distinguish between the common and the profane. The high priest didn't take the butter knife from the temple to, to, to use at his house. The implements in the temple were holy. That means they were set apart only for holy service. Only for the work of the service of the temple. And there was to be no mixing of intent or environment. So because the thing is holy and set apart, it's unmixed. And this is where we understand purity. It's why you buy bottled water because you don't want the mixture of what comes out of Kansas City's you know, system with all the chlorine and this, that, and the other. You want pure water that's been distilled to a state of purity, and that purity is defined by not being mixed with anything else. The trick is we focus our language and, and in effort and emotion around the third definition. I need to be pure. If I don't feel pure, I'm not pure. If I don't feel righteous, I'm not righteous. And we don't understand that you can't even get to purity unless you start to be unmixed, and you can't be unmixed unless you understand what holiness means and where it comes from. So holiness is the, uh, the thing for which we are sanctified. Sanctification is the process of making a thing holy. You don't holy yourself, he sanctifies you. Just like in justification, you don't righteous yourself, he justifies you. Years ago, uh, D. James Kennedy had a, uh, a, a system called evangelism explosion. I went through it as a kid and it was seven steps on the Romans road. Many of you might be familiar with the Romans road. Seven verses in Romans that you use to bring anyone to salvation. I wanna give another Romans road, seven verses to help tease out some of this. Romans 2.20, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Not just a guide, not just a tutorial, we have in the law, the law is perfect. The law of the Lord is good and clean and eternal. We have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth and everyone can say amen to that. The problem, Romans 3.20, is that by works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. Romans 3.21 Yet now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from works of the law. Though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, Romans 3.28, that a man is justified apart from works of the law. Romans 4.13, for the promises to Abraham and his seed that he would inherit the earth did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Romans 10, 4, because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, stop right there. It does not say Christ is the end of the law. And that's what some people hear in a message like this. It says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Why? Romans 1.17, because the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Starts with faith, ends with faith. That's actually what the Greek says. The righteousness of God begins and ends with faith, and everything in between is the journey of faith by which we appropriate what God supplies, grace through faith, and that is the free gift of righteousness in Christ 
And this is the power of the new covenant. It delivers you from the burden and therefore the curse of a law that is so holy, if it's up to you to perform it, you will always fail because the moment it's up to you, you don't actually need to be in relationship with God. The Ten Commandments defines righteousness. If I have the Ten Commandments, all I gotta do is do it. That's why it's uh, the ministry of condemnation because it actually produces the thought, I can do this on my own if I just do those things. And man was actually born to only be alive within the provision and character and nature of God because that's life. And anything that removes humanity from the intimacy of that relational connection is ultimately just one path, one step toward death. And we see that in the garden. They tried to know good and evil rather than participate in life, and it was poison to the soul. God didn't tell Adam, if you eat from the tree, I'm going to kill you. He said, you eat from that, and you're going to die because there's no life there. Modern discipleship, in part, has contributed to some of our confusion because be holy often translates to the believer as to become righteous. And this fosters wrong mindsets and toxic spiritual attitudes and narratives about God and ourselves because it's an impossible command. You can't start the conversation of sanctification with sanctification. It's covenant, righteousness, and sanctification is the process that follows. Righteousness empowers the fact that we have been made righteous in Christ. The fact that we have been uh, 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 born again of imperishable seed. The fact that he has called us by the Spirit to be sons of God. We're part of a new race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are not just uh, uh, struggling to become better versions of ourselves. We are becoming Christ until Christ is formed in you, Paul said. I'm in labor until that depth, that reality. You are actually, uh, uh, your inner man has been reborn. You can't actually comprehend these things apart from being born again. Because the gospel isn't about making a better version of you, it's about reproducing Christ in the earth. So we're a new creation, Paul says. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And that's where I wanna pivot this in the remaining time I have. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. And almost every point of disconnect with the emotions of God comes when our mind is unrenewed enough that we actually pull out of being in Christ and we enter into our own labor and striving. When Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, reverse engineer that verse. If you are experiencing condemnation, it's because somewhere in your thoughts, you pulled yourself out of Christ. If you are experiencing condemnation, the invitation is get back inside the covenant that he has made with his body and his blood that is a covenant of grace. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on what you do. It's established eternally by what he has done. And when we believe that and we come into that, you can't touch me, accuser of the brethren. I am beyond you, and my entire life is now wide open to experience the affections of God. Genesis 2, if you'll turn there for just a second. I want to look, I'm going to pull this back to the question of holiness. Genesis 2, first three verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Everyone say finished. 
and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And so he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And here's the, here's the kicker. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Why did he make it holy? What is that holiness? On the seventh day, he made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You see several phrases here, the completed work, the finished work, holy and rest, all of that's together. In fact, what's interesting, though holy is a key word in the rest of the the Pentateuch, the first five books, it's used only once in Genesis, and that's right here. So later, later, 2,600 years after this point in time of creation, Moses explains the gravity of the Sabbath to the people of God and codifies it as one of the Ten Commandments in the law, but holiness is introduced here before there was sin. So how does God make something holy if it's not in reference to sin? Because almost all, no, all our notions of holiness are referring to a distinction in behavior from sin. But God called the Sabbath holy before there was sin. Holiness was about the finishing of his work. The fact that he says it's holy should stun us. Because holy is the word that stuns everyone in scripture when they see God. When the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, before the throne of God, when they get a glimpse of God, they fall on their face and they only have three words and it's the same word. It's called the trisagion in Latin. The thrice holy proclamation. You don't see God and go, well, that's nice. You see God and you go, I don't even understand because he is so set apart. He's so unique and perfect in beauty. The revelation of God is so profound. He is entirely other than set apart from all creation in such a way that when you get a glimpse of that, the only thing that you can say is holy, 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 holy. I'm gonna bow down for a minute and take a break. Holy, 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 holy. He's that beautiful, he's that perfect, he's that other than, and in the midst of creation, he says, I'm making a day where you can encounter me that way. What I am, immutable, inscrutable, mysterious, lovely, beautiful, powerful, I'm actually gonna create an intersection in time so that my reality can be a part of your experience. Whoa! The holiness of God became located on a timeline so that humanity, we know the the majesty and rulership of God. Uh, There's other applications of that. He will be king over all the earth out of Jerusalem. That requires a pilgrimage. That's a place on a map. This is a point in time that happens over and over and over again. You're continually invited to encounter his holiness throughout all of your life. No matter what else you're doing, you step into that place again. It starts your week over and over. And I'm not talking about the day. If you want to ritualize the day, there's certain health benefits and stress and and all of that. That's great. But I think we miss it if we overemphasize the ritual of the day and we are not experiencing Christ. Sabbath became divine time. A moment in time where humans could step into who he is and will always be. 
Humanity's interesting in this way. We don't think of it, but you are a portal for time. You aren't just moving through time. You're a storage container for time. It's called memory. Think about that. You can remember, occupy, and embody your past now as if it was right here. Because God has made us to intersect with time in unique ways. Part of the power of the Sabbath is it prophesies and promises the gospel because Adam was created on the sixth day, which means God's forming and crafting the man out of the dirt, then the evening and the morning, and he wakes up, Adam's first full day is in the rest of God. Adam comes fully alive in Sabbath. Rest. There is no life for humanity apart from whether or not we are in Christ. And the Sabbath is an old covenant promise that that man is coming in whom you will be reconnected to life again. So we have to ask here in Genesis 2, what was God's part and what was man's? The answer is everything and nothing in that order. The first occurrence is not only for the word holy, but also Sabbath. I don't think I mentioned that, but the fact that these are occurring for the first time in Scripture, the word holy and the word Sabbath, and they're connected on this timeline of creation to the finished work of God is all a part of what theologians call the principle of first occurrence. It means wherever you find a key word for the first time in Scripture, it's it's informing the way you should understand all subsequent occurrences. In other words, we can't understand the command, be holy as I am holy, unless we understand he called the Sabbath holy when there was no sin, and that's what Adam took his first breath inside, and that creation picture is pointing to your new creation life in Christ. Because you take your first breath when the Spirit fills your lungs and he counts his righteousness to you and you are justified, not by works of the law, but by faith. And then he invites you into a process, now be holy as I am holy, but don't step outside of the way that happens. It's always going to come from being in me. It will be as complete as I am because Jesus clarified In the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just about what happens on the outside. He said, Paul uh, Paul to the Thessalonians said, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he explained sanctification, which remember, sanctification is the process of making a thing holy. Justification is the process of making a thing righteous, the act of making a thing righteous. Justification is an act, and it was finished on the cross. Sanctification is the process of taking that righteousness and translating it through partnership with God in his finished work to be holy in all your conduct and behavior. And so Paul says, the will of God is for your sanctification. And then he explains things like don't commit sexual immorality and and other things. It really is meant to affect your real life. But Jesus made it holistic. He said, It's not actually just about committing sexual immorality or committing adultery. If you think and feel with wrong desire, if you lust, then you haven't yet entered the mysteries of holiness. Holiness is not about us gritting our teeth and doing enough to finally impress God or impress ourselves or impress others. Holiness is the great liberation by which we receive his righteousness so profoundly and his truth sanctifies us so that we start to think like him and we have confidence he is doing this work inside of us and it gets lived out in our lives. told myself stay in teacher mode and I just went into preacher mode so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm, I, you know I'm just gonna do this real quick 
if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice and their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves on the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The majesty of God in Psalm 93 is associated in Jewish tradition with the sixth day of creation. They believe, and in fact, the Septuagint titles Psalm 93 for the sixth day, the day before the Sabbath, a Psalm of David. This is the majesty of God because there's a growing body of scholarship that understands The definition when it says God rested on the seventh day, that doesn't mean God was worn out from creation. It doesn't mean he was fatigued. There's a spirit of apathy or lassitude. It's like, whoa, man, that took it out of me. I need to take a break. It's not saying that he was disengaged at all. There's a growing body of scholarship looking at other ancient Near East cultures and Psalms like Psalm 93 that understands the word rest to be God has done everything necessary in creation to form a tabernacle and his holy of holies was in the Garden of Eden. And so he is in the typological temple of the universe with the center of his rulership now established in the garden. He is sitting down to rule. And that's rest. That's the word. He's sitting down the, 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 the rest of God was an expression of his enthronement because he's now about to rule in creation, not rest from it. And Adam draws his first breath in the rulership of that king, in the supply of that king, in the eternal glory of that king, in the full provision of that king, we can't understand what holiness means unless we are being born again into his righteousness and resting in his kingship and rulership. And that becomes a prophecy then of what the new covenant brings to us. Worship team can come on up. The new covenant brings this reality full circle. What Adam lost in the garden was that place of being seated with God in his rulership. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and Ephesians says we are seated with him. So the new covenant trumps your failure propensity in the old covenant. It establishes you in rest because you can't strive when you're seated. If you're seated with Christ in heavenly places, you're now identifying this is the way you think. This is how you get it done. Right here from your all-sufficiency, you're my sufficiency, and there is no holy life that I can pursue apart from that starting point. I sit with you, and you change me, and we talk about these things, and we have the conversation about that, and I start to express it in my life. Amen. Let's stand. I really believe God is going to take us deeper and deeper into his emotions and into his mind. I believe there's covenantal mysteries that are going to be released. They've always been there, but he's going to give more and more understanding. He wants us to be solidly established. I'm telling you today, there is therefore now no condemnation in that man. Let's be found in him. Let's rest in him. Let's let the fullness of his glory and splendor and kingship define everything. If we are set apart with that mind, then it starts to make sense how to be unmixed. Because the superior pleasures of that life, we don't want to 
mess with that and out of that comes pure and holy thinking and living. God, I'm asking for a great renewal of our minds. I encourage you just in a posture of surrender. If you are feeling especially provoked, come up. Feel free to come up and just let someone pray the blessing of the new covenant on you. Right thinking, the mind of God. Just to be delivered from the spirit of striving. But it's not about you striving to be delivered. I'm telling you, take a seat in Him. So, Holy Spirit, you have many tabernacles of your presence here. Fill us with your spirit in a new way. Conform our thoughts and mind to your thoughts and mind. God, I'm asking for you to shatter the false mentality of performance, that you would deliver us into the righteousness that comes by faith. That you would fill your people, God. I believe that what he promised he will The ministry team will come and just begin to lay hands on others. Who promised is faithful and I believe that what he promised oh he will accomplish yes he who promised is faithful and I believe that what he promised oh he will accomplish yes he who promised is faithful and I believe that what he promised oh he will accomplish yes he who promised is faithful ask him to renew your mind and I believe that what he promised oh he have will a conversation with him yes he who promised is faithful of God and the mind of God. God, I'm asking for the holy thoughts, the Holy Spirit, the holy ways that you have architected relationship with us, covenant righteousness, living out holiness. God, would you, we thank you for what you've shown us, but we want more. We want more of your mind, just like we want more of your affection and emotion people from the spirit of striving so we can stand in the day of testing and having done all stand. Spirit of revelation come. Oh, we say grace, grace to enter into your rest. To enter into your perfect To the depths, the depths of your wisdom, the depths of your love. into the mind of Christ. Oh, I rest in you. Your grace is enough. Yeah. I rest in you. Your grace is enough. I rest in you. Your grace is enough. I rest in you.
Like you, oh Father. 